The other thing that I really like to kind of think about emotions lately is that they're like toddlers and they just want attention. You know, our feelings want to be acknowledged and aired. And if like a toddler, they aren't getting attention, they're going to get louder and louder and louder until they do. Welcome back to The Pleasure Ethic. I'm Javier Cortez, joined by my co-host, Elena Letourneau. And today we are talking about emotional literacy. Leading up into our first official episode, because we had episode zero, we were going back and forth about what did we follow up episode zero with? There's so many ways to go. There's so many topical, interesting things that we want to talk about. But correct me if I'm wrong, Elena, emotional literacy really is foundational to so many of the things that we're going to get into with this podcast, so many things we hope to talk about. Emotional literacy really is, it underpins everything. Am I wrong on that? No, you are right. It it underpins everything and it is inextricable to all the things that we're talking about. We are emotional creatures yeah and we kind of like to think that we're not but we are all the time right like it's not we're not these logical cold calculated mathematical beings we're constantly making decisions off of our emotions yeah but we act like we don't i do want to say i may uh this might not be the first time i mentioned her but brene brown did a HBO series and wrote a book. I think it's, I think she calls it Atlas of the Heart, but it's, it's all about her research on emotion. And there's a lot of resonances with her work and how I've come to view and think about emotion. And she, I think she quotes someone, but now she's quoted as saying, we think we're thinking beings who feel sometimes, Mm. but really we're feeling beings that think sometimes. Yes. Yes. And I think some people are just a lot better at kind of masking their emotions and seeming a lot more calculated than others. But it's always a part of that. We're not these, I used to love to think that I was this logical being. And maybe that's where (laughs) we should start with kind of like, what does emotional literacy mean for you? And I guess for me, it's this constant evolution of becoming more self-aware of the fact that I am emotional <laughs> and, yes. not, yeah. and not this hyper-logical person. It's realizing that I kind of live in my own world m- more times than not, and it's stepping out of that world and realizing other people's perspective. That's really where I've had to gain a lot in terms of emotional literacy, maturity, knowledge, all of those things, I would say. Yeah. So what does, how would you define emotional literacy? What does that mean to you? Self-awareness, becoming more aware of yourself. Kind of just like I said, it's, it's, I always used to think that I didn't understand people and why I thought they were so dumb or so mean or so this or so that. And it was really, I was just so wrapped up in my own perspective and in my own world. So I I feel that it's just, it's just more about having self-awareness. And I think I used to confuse and think about being logical and calculated as something that is completely different, but you can only become more logical 
calculated by becoming a lot more emotionally literate, because then you'll start to make more logical and calculated decisions in terms of how you interact with other people, how you communicate with other people. But you have that, you gain that through some type of understanding of yourself, how your own emotions work, your own perspective, and how that's quite different from other people's, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's what you got. From, I got right? an A? Like, yeah, you get an A. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get an A. You get it. It's your experience. Yeah, There's no right. way that you can't fail at describing yeah. your own experience. Right. How would you describe it? Well, you know, I've, I've done, I've done a lot of work and, you know, research formally and in, well, not formal research, but, you know, I have anecdotal and professional experience in, in this. And there's a lot, lot of therapy modalities now that are really focused on emotion. Like there's literally, you know, emotionally focused therapy. And I think of it as, well, one (laughs) being literate literally having the language for emotion. Mm-hmm. So this was something else that Brene Brown said that I thought was really great and funny. She like when when they were doing the research, they asked people to name emotion. And most people, the vast majority of people could name three. Happy, mm-hmm. sad, and pissed off. And so first of all, there is this, you know, actually having the language, knowing how many different feelings and how many different words there are for our our feel, felt experience. Then there's also a body component, which is I I believe that every emotion has a somatic component. Like every right. emotion has a physical sensation that goes with it that we may or we, most of us are not aware of because we're taught to dissociate. We're taught to value the rational over the emotional, the mind over the body. And then finally, I think fluency and literacy is about being fluent in our own emotional experience to know what we're feeling, when we're feeling it, how we know, and then to have some practice over the only thing that we can control in our emotional nature, which is how we express our emotions Mm -hmm. and how we both how we express and how we experience emotion. No, I think even just there, just like being in tuned with what your body is telling you is something I'll be I'll be honest I'm still feel like I'm a ways away from and even Well, I do. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this and one thing I want to say too is in addition to emotionally focused modalities, there's a lot of body-based modality coming mm-hmm. out too alongside a lot more understanding of trauma and how it yes. lives in the body. So with trauma being such a fucking epidemic on this planet, yes. I do I think it's really important to acknowledge that the body piece, the part that requires us to be in the body is challenging for everyone taught to be dissociated but specifically for people who have trauma. We yeah. don't want to be in our body. It that takes a lot of work and help. <laughs> yeah, and I think even with the aversion to wanting to kind of go there, it's even for me, it's just always conceptually really hard to understand. Like I remember when I did EMDR for the first time and uh, other therapy outside of just strictly talk therapy 
or that where do you feel it in your body? How does that mm-hmm. make your body feel? Mm-hmm. Conceptually, I just did not understand, cannot grasp where are you getting at? Is there supposed to be a place I'm feeling it? Am I supposed <laughs> right? to have an answer for you? You know, like- again, like there's being having a aversion to wanting to go there or having to know how your body feels, but conceptually it's something that is not straightforward and it's not something when you kind of break down emotional literacy like you just did we skip that part and if we need a lot of literacy in one place it's like understanding and feeling our body and how we can feel emotions in our body because again i'm still very much on the road to gaining that type of literacy yeah i think that's a really it's a super valid point and as you were talking i was thinking yeah it's a lost language we don't come into the world not knowing what's mm-hmm. happening in our body. We're all body when we first mm-hmm. get here. Yeah. And we get taught to be dissociated from it. And your response, you're like, what are you talking about? I had the same response when I first mm-hmm. started doing therapy. I remember my therapist being like, where do you feel it in your body? And I sort of had this, I was like, oh, well, it's like a no. What are you talking about? And even now when, I mean, I am stereotypical in that way. I, you know, I'm always bringing attention to it. Right. And part of it is just like really slowing down. You know, I, I could just think back to like some therapy sessions and feeling like a jackass. This person's making me like they think I'm dumb, whatever this kind of shill therapeutic work is. And I'm talking years ago now. It was just because <laughs> it was just so what are we doing here, dude? I know I, I can't feel it in my body. I'm talking to you about it. It, it, it was yeah. just such a out of left field type of thing that made me feel stupid like it Mm. made me feel like you think i'm dumb whatever this is you're trying to pull on me because this this what am i missing here almost that's unfortunate yeah i don't like that you had that experience (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) but you know i think the therapist at the time couldn't really explain it to me in a way that that made me more trusting of the process of what I was going through. It's like they knew the principles, but they didn't know how to explain the fundamentals of the principles to exactly. me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They missed there's a there was a gap, right? Yeah. About how to get from here to here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, dude, that- I'm here. I, I I do want help. I do want service, but Make it make sense for me. Or make it exp- make sense. Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't making sense for me. And so. don't make me feel stupid. That's yes. Not, that's- yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that was more of a projection thing. Again, if, if I always had the feeling of if you're not making it make sense for me, I'm going to feel stupid. And if I'm going to feel stupid, I'm going to place it on you. Yeah. Because and they that's couldn't- not a therapist. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I got opinions about that. And I've yeah. been there. I mean, I've, I've had my fair share of what the fuck therapy yeah. experiences yeah um that's for another episode though that's for another episode yeah but what i kind of want to get into right now is you and i since we're the ones having the conversation mm-hmm. how we were how we came up around emotional literacy you know like whoo i was basically taught that big emotions strong emotions are you know equated with basically are volatile and I internalized a lot of lessons early on that I was too much, that my emotions were too big. And I have a little mom voice. I call it my mom, my old mom voice. Sorry, mom. 
that says nobody wants to see that Elena. Oh. That's too big and that's too messy and that's too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean I think that's common too, right? That just that especially probably from being raised within that female embodiment of compartmentalize the emotions, put them down, don't be too much, don't be too loud, don't be too this. Because there are aspects of being male that you can be loud and too much as a guy. Mm -hmm. Well, Uh, there's some you can't, but you know. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know we do we do have gendered experiences a Mm -hmm. lot of the times too. And so let's let's start like this. So what's a what's a good emotion and what's a bad emotion? And I think you know what you were starting to get at is. is that some emotions are okay for people socialized female to ha- have and express and some male, but I want to get even more like yeah. personal here. Like, you know, what kind of what I was just describing is basically for me, what it kind of felt like was like all emotion is bad. Oh, wow. Or, or too big of an expression, expression of emotion of it. is bad, no matter what emotion it is. But a lot of people come up with like, you know, there are good emotions and bad emotions, right? What's a bad emotion? Well, specifically with my father crying, you know, mm. don't start crying because then I'll give you something to cry about. You know, there's generations of people that have heard that. Yep. So a lot of that growing up, and it was always different with my parents. My mother really was the type of adult and parent who sees a child as a person. And my father was the adult and type of parent that sees a child as a child, as something that is plays a role, but hmm. doesn't have fully have its own expression, if that makes sense. So yeah. my mother was open to most and all emotions. My father, not so much. And specifically to those bad ones like crying which he tended he tended to make us do quite a lot as kids uh but you start to mm-hmm. learn how to suppress them mm-hmm. to the point where it's just now as an adult or going through my mid 20s I had to learn how to cry which is very yeah. hard and having this feeling of I want to express my emotions. I want to cry so bad, but I can't. I don't know how. So crying was a really big one in my family, specifically with my father. Crying was not something that was allowed. And I and yeah. I now understand it as he could not handle the discomfort of what that emotion brings out. He could not handle the, the the discomfort of the role that he was playing with his behavior. Um, oh man, that was that, kind of his whole thing too. That's such a like fundamental dysfunctional parenting mm-hmm. strategy. Yeah. Um. So often, I think parents are control trying to control their kids to manage their own anxiety, which is interesting because I think we actually then also take that into our adult relationships. Oh yeah, a lot of the fixing impulse Mm -hmm. is really, I mean, there is like, I care about you and I don't want you to be uncomfortable, but there's also like, you're making me uncomfortable and I need you to stop doing this behavior so that I can feel better. Yes, 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 (laughs) yes, yes, absolutely. 
No, absolutely. So yeah, I, I would say that that was the big one. I think as a boy and as a male kind of in society, being boisterous, being loud, talking shit was celebrated. It was funny. I can't always say that for a lot of like my female counterparts growing mm. up in El Paso, though. And I know for my sister, because I have an older sister as well, her relationship to those kind of things, maybe even talking shit, as I like to call it, it, I don't know that she had the latitude to kind of, and the freedom to really do stuff like that, because I think contextually for her to do that, then that's backtalk. Mm. That's disrespectful. That's It becomes yeah. a different thing. And it, no, you weren't being sarcastic. No, 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 that's not what was going on. So, you know, there were certain contexts where I could be on the tennis court or on the basketball court with my father and we were playing against each other. And I could hit a jumper or hit a forehand winner and say, how'd you like that, motherfucker? And get away with it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But we go home and he makes me cry and it's like, I'll give you something to cry about. So it's like, huh. You know, the Yeah, so being being weird. tough and talking back was okay, but yeah. being soft, um, uh, being you know, crying was not yeah. okay. And there there you see that gendered experience yeah. as well. Back to you, sorry. I, yeah. I, I do want to ask because I am curious when you say most uh, expression was not allowed for you growing up, especially if it was over a certain threshold, but was there certain ones that seemed to get pushed down a bit more or was it just across the board well, you you know, being if, expressive, being bad? So my experience, like if I think about my childhood through this lens of emotional experience, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, it was just, it was chaotic, mm-hmm. you know, in the, the hippie cult, which they like to call a commune, but I'm pretty sure if we got the like current, you know, markers mm-hmm. of what a cult is, it fits them all. And, you know, there were a lot of people and there was a lot of drugs and there was a lot of homeschooling and there was like, it was, there was a lot happening and it was chaotic. And then whew, in my family, in my immediate family of origin, I'm getting a little nervous talking about this because it's like it's a it's exposed it's exposed feels exposing it's personal but we're gonna get into this stuff so I might as well start here. My dad was a volatile, violent, addicted person, Mm. and so his expressions of emotion, like it's funny when I think about my parents, like he was the passionate one, and my mom was like more of the shut down. I mean, maybe even cold one in terms mm-hmm. of emotion. Um, so what I got modeled was no no emotion is cold. It's like disconnecting, but it's safe. And he, you know, big emotion is chaotic, potentially violent, dangerous. Mm. So I had these. At one point in my own therapy, I was like, it was like I had an angel and a devil on my shoulder, except that really they were both devils. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Only one was dressed up as an angel. And so what I, what I really want to see and what I lacked and 
this is true in so many areas of life, but nobody helped me manage my emotional experience. And so for me, what ended up kind of happening, like my pattern through my childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood was that I would, I would control that shit. I would control my emotions. I would control them. I would keep them under in check as much as I could until I couldn't anymore. And then it would explode out of me and usually crying because crying is acceptable for girls. And it would happen. And I would happen at like, you know, in a conversation with someone or it would happen at work all the time. I was waitressing. I remember and like it would hit and I would just, I would just start crying. I would get kind of hysterical and I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And I was mortified and I was ashamed. And then, you know, would just go back to the cycle. It's, it's interesting because I, I know so many women like that where it's their white knuckling every second of the day. And then it's (laughs) some type of emotional outburst, but it's not always crying. I know someone, women who are very much rage filled and angry i've had i've had some i've had some ragers oh they're who can get violent i know some who their expression falls into you know a bottle of vodka or other substances um and then of course where it's more stereotypical with women is the crying which more times when i see that i'm like good for fucking you man you need to cry that's the one that I've always been terribly envious of. It's just mm. like, why can't I release myself like that? Why can't I just let go like that? It's like I almost have to work myself up to cry. It's such a, I have to exhaust myself. And by the time I finish crying, I don't feel better. I just feel exhausted with myself. Learning that expression in of itself yeah. is so hard. So, you know, crying is an expression of emotion. It isn't this, it isn't an emotion itself. Sure, sure. Right. So what like and I think most of us are white knuckling it. Yeah. Right. When we when we don't have good models of for emotional literacy and can and expression, most of us are, and most of us explode in one way or another. What's what might what might be gendered is frequency the mode. Uh, the mode of expression. Okay. You know, I mean Guys rage more often, you know, right. like, okay, so anger in emotion that typically is like the one feeling that men are allowed to feel. Yeah. And they do it a lot. And they do it a lot. Yeah. Right. You know, we get to feel sad and stuff, but I kind of, I don't want to get too gendered in mm-hmm. this conversation. I will say one thing that I kind of learned in the process of my work, which is, like so many things, I think there is a gendered discrepancy here. And I think one of the things that we kind of, you know, conventional wisdom is that women are emotional and men are not. Oh, it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's so wrong. We are human. We are emotional. We have limbic brains. We literally have a whole section of our brain that is about emotional experience. But the way I describe it is that neither one are like, so we kind of go around thinking like, women are more emotionally evolved and men are not. But the way I like to just think about it is that women are overdeveloped emotionally and men are underdeveloped. So then we get into like our stereotypes of like, you know, being crazy and being a dumbass, you know? Yeah. Um, But 
neither really are literate. Two quick things. The the notion that men have that women are more emotional while not acknowledging violent outbursts constantly raging as being emotional, that cognitive dissonance. And I've had this discussion with male friends where it's like, women aren't more emotional than you. But it's like, unless they they only see being emotional as crying, and then everything else after that is just not emotions to them. Yeah, And that's just always fascinating. But But an interesting thing that I'm starting to realize within our dynamic too, that I find interesting, and this really speaks to just our geographic location and where we live and the culture that we live in. I see things through a, a gendered lens so much uh, more than you do. Yeah. And so I, ca- <laughs> I, I catch myself making these male and female distinguishments way more than you do. And it's actually, just because of the lens of I'm from El Paso. I mean, I make a point to to not be gendered mm-hmm. or to to try to be really inclusive in the way that I talk about things. Again, because my life experience has led me to these conclusions. Like, yeah. You know, there is a binary gendered experience that is part of the status quo, but most people don't actually fit in it. And my lived experience has showed me a lot. I've had different experiences and I know people who don't fall into these categories. So I'm effortfully trying to see this through a human lens and not a gendered lens. Well, that is also aligns with my experience. Well, I'll take it a step further for you. You you see it the correct way because <laughs> basically all gender expression is just social construction. It's, it's not inherent. Right. It's not exactly. real. Um, it's not essential. It's not. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, where you're from, it's just like you gender expression is, you know, flipped on its head kind of culturally yeah. and societally. But where I have you're to at. say too that. It, but you like, still see it there. That and it, and my, well, ooh, we're going to have to have an episode about gender. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's impossible gonna, for us to stay on task. It's so impossible. But, but it's like um, we have, we have wanna, to get like, into it. Yeah, identity, representation. I mean, there's there's good stuff to go off from here. Yeah. Um, let's, let's uh, ooh, and it's exciting too, but I'm going to bring it back. So it's interesting because so far I think we've, we've talked about crying and raging, which are two... I think very common sort of uncontrolled expressions of emotion when we hit that, I mean, we're, we're all kind of white knuckling it too, because we're all taught to dissociate from our bodies, from our emotional nature, to be rational, to be logical, right? Mind over matter. That is some bullshit. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta get back to matter. Matter mm-hmm. matters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> put that on a t-shirt matter matters matter matters so i think that there were times in my childhood especially when i was in conflict with my dad where i would always end up crying and oh man i'll tell you there were there are a lot of feelings in that I mean, and I can, I can parse them out now. Like I can, I can feel all the layer, every, every layer of feeling, but oftentimes I was angry and it mm-hmm. wasn't safe for me to express anger in any other way. Mm-hmm. So I cried. Um, and then often I felt humiliated because I felt like ultimately he always broke me. 
and uh, it was a it was a you know it was a struggle of wills it was a it was a power thing but yeah there was a lot of anger and fear that i couldn't express i couldn't express authentically yeah so it came out in other ways and i think our associations with crying when we see kids crying whoever crying we don't oh that person's angry we think oh, <laughs> we don't we- look at that timid weak mild manner that we don't think that anger can express itself in that way. And that was a lot of my relationship to crying too as a child was frustration and anger and just this intense amount of pain. But I really connect to that feeling of being broken or like this person got to me, Mm -hmm. especially the older I got. And when my father would make me cry or would break me in a way, or even just in general, like, shit, they got me. And it's, again, that conditioning of being told not to cry, and then they get you. And then yeah. shaming even more for crying. So yep. it's, it's, it's you're, you develop like a callus to it. But sometimes they break through that callus and actually wound you deeper, even though you have all that dead skin built over it. Ooh, yeah. See, so many feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so many feelings all the time. I mean, I'm having feelings talking about these things, right? You know? There was a part of it as I was going on and kind of, again, tying this back to emotional literacy, I always felt like I had a better understanding of my father's emotions more so than mine. Oh, because I Because I knew yes. his childhood very well from what my mother would tell tell me because my father never told me really about what his childhood was like and it was really hard and so i always had a lot of empathy for my father even though he was incredibly abusive verbally he had a really bad drinking problem he wasn't good to my mother and he was angry all the time and there's a time where i was scared of uh, of him as a child but i knew where he came from And so I felt a lot of pain for him. Mm. So even as I was having these negative experiences with him, I was still feeling deeply for him. So when I still look back on it, I don't have a lot of anger for my father because I didn't back then either. It's still a lot of sadness. You know what strikes me about that, though, is that you were a kid Mm -hmm. having empathy for your parents yeah, or your your dad. Who was having empathy for you? My mother. You know, I, I I would say, you know, she was, if she wasn't the person she was, then I, I really think my childhood would be, it would have been a lot tougher because I had love. I felt love. I, I felt mm. loved growing up. I felt yeah, like there so- was a, a space for me to be a person as a kid. And, um, and my mother had a lot to do with that. Yeah, tell me how she responded to your emotional experiences and expression. She wanted to know why. What's Mm. going on? Express yourself. Expand on that. She really invited a lot of curiosity. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, (laughs) God bless my mom. God, I love to hear that. No, she... she, But again, it, it goes back to this idea of an adult and a parent seeing a child as a person 
Yes, I like and yeah. and she and you know my mom has been a elementary school teacher for forty plus years, and if you know anybody teaching in public school for forty plus years, they ain't doing it for the money, they ain't doing it yeah. for the benefits. They're doing it because they love the kids, and and loving the kids is not this you like to put a smile on their face all the time and sue them. It's because you love their humanity, and so yeah. well, you know that's true about we your felt mom. That. Yeah, That's, absolutely. Like, I mean, this is true about your mom. Yeah. And and, and one thing on my father, because I, I don't want to bash him completely. Maybe this is this empathy thing coming in. He tried his hardest with what he knew, with the tools that he had. Did he listen to my mother's advice all the time and, you know, take up her perspective? No. And I and that's kind of the failure that I placed on him more times than not not using his partner as somebody to get better at parenting. But with where he came from, what he knew, he did his best. And still at the end of the day, I knew he loved me. I knew I was loved by my father. He just wasn't really, didn't have the tools to parent in a very empathetic, yeah, just in a very empathetic way, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I like to say when I'm when I work with people and we talk about how we get, you know, our early experiences with our parents that maybe weren't so great is that yes, of course, like everybody really, I mean, I can say this with like 99% confidence that everybody's doing the best they can all the time mm. with what they've got, you know. Yeah. And I know that about my parents too. You know, I could tell you that, you know, the legacies there make sense. The transmission of intergenerational pathology is clear and we can have empathy and also have empathy for ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. and our, and ourselves as children who didn't get our needs met or worse, you know, that we can, I don't want people to have empathy at the expense, empathy for their caregivers at the expense of also really like feeling your own grief around what we missed or how we were harmed. No, that's so true. And you have the perspective of being a parent yourself too. I do. Um, And, you know, for me, it's, I can extend my parents a lot of empathy and understand where they come from. But when I see bad parenting, abusive parenting from people I know, that's where it's like, I almost don't want to hear they're doing their best they can. It's really, I know. And I know you're right. And I know you're right, but it's like, oh, I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. No, I know. I mean, at this (sighs) point, it's like, it's hard for me. I can't, you know, empathy is also can be dangerous. Like if I empathize too much, then I put myself in harm's way and in some ways, right? But speaking of um, being a parent and emotional literacy, you know, I think one way that we as children learn to sort of exile parts of ourselves and dissociate from parts of ourselves is via emotional expression and how and the reactions that it gets, right? So if I cry and I get a bad reaction from one of my parents, I'm going to learn that crying is bad. That part of me that needs to cry needs to be shut down. You know, and that's something I'll say about my mom. Uh, she was adopted with her twin brother, whole epic saga story there but yeah she used to tell me about how she wasn't allowed to cry if it was emotional pain if she scraped her knee and she cried she would be taken care of if there wasn't a physical any physical harm it was not okay and she would cry alone in her closet and 
that to me is like, you know, epitomizes my mom and her lack of emotional literacy. And then I come along and we're in this chaotic life that she's found herself into. And I am, I mean, I'm so glad to be where I'm at right now because I am a lot. I have big feelings. I love my big feelings. I'm passionate. I'm loud. I'm opinionated. And she did not know what to do with me, mm. which I understand. But as a young person having big emotions, having a parent that either reacted in equally big and out of proportion to my big emotions or what seemed like scared and overwhelmed by me just made it a completely unsafe and overwhelming experience. So that, that was my like emotion was unsafe and overwhelming almost across the board. Um, mm. But I think most people, like I said, like, you know, if you're happy, we're going to hang out. That's good. But if you're sad or disappointed or angry, then you got to go be in your room. You know, there's a lot of a lot of exiling that we we internalize. And I do want to say, I feel like that's changing a lot. I mean, it's certainly changed in the way that I parent. And my brother has three young kids and I watch them. Not only are they more emotionally literate in helping their kids through it, but I mean, emotional literacy is having a heyday, especially in therapeutic circles. You know, it's like we know it's important. What are you feeling right now? Hmm. Um, I mean, very self-reflective of, of the role that I played in my childhood. How do I put that into how, what am I feeling? Just inquisitive. Is that a feeling? Okay. Yes. Well, how are you feeling? Um, uh, as per usual, I'm feeling a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I feel... I feel nervous. I feel engaged. And I also feel like there's a little bit of like a part of me watching this out here. Maybe, maybe I feel a little disconnected. Trying to watch what you say, watch what you do. Yeah. 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 Is it weird that I don't get nervous a lot? I don't know. Do you think it's weird? I don't think so. But then as I get older and I see how people get nervous a lot more than I do. I, and I used to think if that was a you good do, thing. And you just don't notice. Oh, I know when I'm nervous. Oh yeah? Well, How do you know? How do you know when you're nervous? I can feel it in my body. Oh <laughs> <laughs> see what you did there? Yeah. No. Okay, I mean, great. Heart great. starts no, pounding, sweating. Yes. You know, yes. stuttering. Yeah. Um The nerves I feel right now are kind of in my belly. Okay. Okay. Um oh. Yeah, and actually what I know about that is that um that's that's a nervousness associated with vulnerable exposure. Mm. And that's that's what you know, any time doing to me. <laughs> and it's funny, any time I express a vulnerability or express or talk about something that is you know, not, you know, sunshine and rainbows from my childhood, I'm usually after the fact like, oh shit. Like, should I mm. say that one? That That's where I really find myself. And and the danger about us doing this, sometimes I forget we're recording a fucking podcast. <laughs> I do that a lot. So it's like, yeah, yeah I, can, I can see myself in the camera. I have my, you know, my mic right in front of me. But 
I kind of get lost in our conversation and kind of lost just thinking about all these things. Well, um, yeah, that's yeah. I, I get lost in it too. And I think there's a part of me that's like, you know, I have all of this professional content, if you will, mm. all this like that I've learned and gained. And I really like there is sort of a pressure and there's a desire for me that I want to get it out. Right. Um, but then I get caught up in a conversation. And so there's like, I want to be in conversation with you. I think that's what we that's what I'm here for. But it brings up this sort of veil that I'm already always navigating of the professional and the personal. And it, it's so interesting because this ties right back into my formative experience around emotion and exposure. Like, is this safe? You know, is this okay? Can I take up this space? Is it going to be too much? Nobody wants to see that, Elena. You know? Yeah. And that was, again, sorry, mom. But she, I internalized two main things from my mom. And it was the very the same around my emotional expression and my erotic and sexual expression. I don't know if she ever said it to me verbatim, but the voice is nobody wants to see that, Elena. It's too much. It's gross. It's out of control. It's inappropriate. It's vulgar. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole mess of shit in there. So just even having this conversation in this way is touching on a lot of that. No, it's and it's always fascinating too, watching you get uncomfortable. Be, <laughs> is it? <laughs> It it is for this reason, from my perception. Oh, yeah. and, and when I think of you, mm -hmm. you're this person who lives very out loud and authentically. I don't think your personality is loud, but it's. I mean, you're a sex and relationship coach. There, there's not a sense of, oh, well, make sure you watch your language with Elena because she'll get easily offended. There's none of that with you. So to, to watch it kind of get flipped on its head or turned around to you and kind of see you go, it's like, wow, look at her. She's she's struggling now a bit. I wouldn't think yep. that. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's funny. an interesting was, wrinkle of your personality. I was thinking about this last night, I think, a little bit. And I think part of it is like, I don't know who's listening to this. I don't know who's going to hear this. I keep saying, sorry, mom. I don't know if my mom's going to listen to this. And I am used to these really exposing, vulnerable, intimate kind of conversations occurring in a one-to-one -one context where mm -hmm. I am super attuned to the other person. And in such a degree that like I'm even, I guess, in some ways titrating myself, you know, like how much can they take, you know, what? Mm -hmm. And it is, I mean, that's an interesting thing about doing this with you because I don't do that with you. And here we are doing a podcast and who's not yeah. listening, but you and I talk like this. So yes, ah, yeah. I'm out. I'm yeah. out in all the ways. No, like if if we were just having a phone call right now for, for the listeners, it would just be like this just times three in length <laughs> yeah. and in, in exposure and in randomness in terms of how we get sidetracked. Um, yep. But let's let's bring it back a bit. Let's let's let's, let's circle the wagons. Let's get back on track. We've talked about why, or we opened this episode with why we're talking about emotional literacy, because it underpins everything, it's foundational to everything, but more or less, how do we apply emotional literacy? Like, If we're going to give it a listener to take something away 
uh, how do they take this into their daily life or what's uh, how do we apply this essentially all right so first of all i mean there there's there's work to be done right about like learning how to tell what's happening in our bodies how to connect that to uh what we're feeling how to have the words for what we're feeling and i think that there's a lot of ways that this applies. So when I do basic work around awareness of feelings, like one of the things that there's several things that come up that I always find fascinating. One is sometimes people really struggle with just saying what they're feeling without saying the why mm-hmm. or the because, especially in a couple, you know, like I'm feeling sad and you want to like, extrapolate or quant qualify or say why. And it's very challenging for people to just be present with what they're feeling. And I think it's a liberating practice, a practice that helps us be present to our own experience, not just thinking about it, but being really present to what is happening right now. Like now I am feeling focused and The other thing that like, if we were to go back and forth in this one experiment that I like to do, we start to notice one, how many feelings we can be having at the same time, how quickly emotions move through us. A lot of disorder, emotional disorder comes from repressing an emotion that we're afraid to feel and then it gets stuck and then it turns toxic. Whereas, and we're afraid of you know, we can be really afraid of it, but if we lean into it and we feel it, it actually moves on. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about this one time in a session. I was like, emotions are in motion. I was like, oh, huh. Put it on a t-shirt. My latest though is that another t-shirt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got t-shirts coming. (laughs) Merch coming soon. (laughs) Merch coming soon. (laughs) The other thing that I really like to kind of think about emotions lately is that they're like toddlers and they just want attention. You know, our feelings want to be acknowledged and aired. And if like a toddler, they aren't getting attention, they're going to get louder and louder and louder until they do. Or maybe in in, in another episode, we can talk about my theory about how they can actually turn toxic and lead to depression and different things like that. Um, That's my experience. So all of that practice, though, I think you know, one of the benefits of it is becoming more aware and compassionate to, of our own experience. And then also of each other's experience, you know, that being emotional, being in our feelings without having to explain or justify or anything brings a kind of spaciousness and relief and relaxation, which I think is very therapeutic and very beneficial. The other really significant piece is that a lot of times in our relationships, we're trying to work out conflict in a logical way when what we're actually experiencing is emotional. And emotional literacy is one of the basic building blocks of how to have an emotional conversation, which is also how to have a reparative conversation, which is also how to have a connecting conversation. And so emotional fluency. In, in language and our own experience of it is rich in possibility, therapeutic, relational, erotic, 
connecting creatively, like it not only underpins, it is like foundational to experience of being human. It's the ultimate prerequisite. It's the ultimate prerequisite. It is relationships 101. There you go. All right. I think we all got an A for this first episode. Okay. So for Elena Letourneau, I'm Javier Cortez. That was the pleasure ethic. Elena, as always, it was a pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you next time.